Blog Talk Radio. This week's Dungeon Crawlers Radio is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash Dungeon Crawlers Radio to start your free trial membership. Hey everybody, this is Revan with Dungeon Crawlers Radio, and I've brought to you another great interview with Dan Farr of Salt Lake Comic Con, talking about a couple things they have going on this weekend. First, the Hero Dash, uh, which is this Saturday... October 25th at Liberty Park cost is $30 and you get if you go to Comic-Con's website right now you can get $5 off with the promo code FUNRUN but we're going to talk to more about that in the interview with Dan and we're going to talk about the Hero Dash we're going to be talking about the cosplay uh, uh, classes that they provide as well Hey everybody, this is Revan with Dentrocollars Radio, and I've brought to you another great interview with Dan Farr of Salt Lake Comic Con, talking about a couple things they have going on this weekend. First, the Hero Dash, uh, which is this Saturday, October 25th at Liberty Park, cost is $30, and you get if you go to Comic Con's website right now, you can get $5 off with the promo code FUNRUN. But we're going to talk to more about that in the interview with Dan. And we're going to talk about the Hero Dash. We're going to be talking about the cosplay uh, uh, classes that they provide, as well as they are doing a Halloween party this weekend for adults only. But we'll, we'll st- check that out. But again, this is Dan Farr of Salt Lake Comic Con. Hello. Hey there. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, does it sound okay? Yeah, it sounds clear. No problem at all. All right. Good. Um, yeah. Fun to... Thanks for doing this. Yeah, no problem. We enjoy doing it and getting it out to everyone, so... Yeah. You guys are doing some great stuff with all these little events that keep people plugged into Comic-Con throughout the year, so... We enjoy it. We we have a lot of fun with it, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you guys do. So, uh, the Hero Dash this is this weekend, correct? Saturday? Yes, it is. So that would be, oh, what is Saturday? The 26th? 5th, yeah, I think 25th. 25th. Yeah. That's right, today's Thursday, not Wednesday. Uh, wow. Yeah. So, what made you guys... Yeah. What made you guys decide to, to put on this Hero Dash? Well, we, you know, we... Um, had somebody come with us, come to us with an idea to, to do an event like this, mm-hmm. and and um, so we decided that it would, you know, it, we liked the idea. It'd be fun to see, give people a chance to, you know, another chance to put on their costumes and and have a good time, and at the same time do something good. So so we uh, started with the idea, just planning to do it on the 25th, but then. We noticed that there's lots of other events going on the 25th as well. Yeah. And so we thought, you know what? To make it stronger for everybody involved, let's uh, connect with one of the other groups. And we we selected the uh, Utah Rotary um, just because we, you know, we felt that they had a a great venue for it. But also we, you know, after meeting with them, we were really impressed with them, and they had already started their cause for, um, you know, for to stamp out polio, mm-hmm. and for us, we had we had 
partnered with underground, uh, the Operation Underground Railroad and Huntsman Cancer Institute. So, we, you know, with, um, with that in mind, we figured, you know, just combining the efforts and creating a, a bigger event that would have, uh, you know, it would be more fun, especially when you got zombies and superheroes, and you basically just open up the the opportunity for pretty much anything goes. <laughs> yeah. So the main charities, I guess, would be the Huntsman Cancer Society, the Operation Underground Railroad, and Utah Rotary for the polio stuff? Yes, and, and, and they call it and polio now. Okay. Polio now. Nice. I mean, and those are great, great charities to donate to. And yeah, you know, I've ran 5K myself. I, I will never do it again. But uh, it's not that easy. I mean, if, unless you're like a, a hardcore runner, it's you know, it doesn't seem three miles would be that difficult. But it's it's not that easy. And then to throw on yeah. a costume, I mean. I, I'm, I'm with you on that, and it, but it's you know one thing about it is it's not really about a timed race. I mean, some people yeah. may want to focus on on you know speed, but it's really it's more an experience. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that, yeah. So, uh, what you know, what's kind of the the driving force behind? doing these mini events that you guys are putting together like the Hero Dash or the Zombie 5K? Um, mainly it's a chance to hang out with the people we, we love, you know, the, the uh, you know, let's say our, our followers on Facebook and people that have supported us. When we have events like this, it's a chance for us to, to get out and spend more time with them. Because, you know, doing one or two Comic-Con events, whether it's FanX or or the, you know, September Comic-Con, doing one or two a year, it kind of leaves you dry in between. Yeah. And so we, we, we love looking for opportunities to get together with people. Nice. Now, is is there a cost pertaining to the Hero Dash? It is. It's uh, $30 to register. And... Uh, you know, a portion of those proceeds will be going to support the, you know, these other groups. Yeah, and it looks, like, it looks like they get a nifty T-shirt as well. Yes, you get a T-shirt, get a bumper sticker, and uh, there'll be a race bib as well. Nice. And uh, what time on Saturday is this starting? Uh, people should show up around 1 o'clock. The race starts at 2, and so they they should make sure that everything's all squared away, you know, between 1 and one thirty. And then also, after the race is over, Alex Boyer is going to be performing for, for a bit nice. around 3 o'clock. Yeah, that should be fun. Yeah, that would be lots of fun. Now, where is this? Uh, where is this, the race located, or where is it going to? Liberty Park. Okay, Liberty Park. Nice. Yeah. That should be yeah, fun. Yeah, that, that should be fun. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice wide open area. Now, is it is it just going to be within the park circle, or are they going to go outside the park and then return or I, I believe that we're gonna be within the park circle there. I you know, I, I should have a hard answer on that, but oh, I don't okay. know the exact I know that the, we basically just work with the rotary because they already had the route set up nice. and have adopted their route. Okay. Yeah, I mean I've seen several five Ks there where they've just stayed within the park. They don't have to worry about the flow of traffic or anything like that and they just uh, do that oval 
but there have been others where I've seen they've gone outside. So, but if you're just adopting theirs, that just makes it even more easier for you guys. Yeah, I I, I believe so. I, yeah, that that's uh, we we find that when we can synergize with other people on, on things, we we just see so many more benefits than you know trying to go it alone all the time. Yeah. Now I saw on a recent email you guys sent out that. There is a promo code that's valid till uh, Friday, the twenty, the night, midnight on the twenty fourth. If they put in the promo code Fun Run, they get like five dollars off. Is that correct? Yes. So hey, you can do it for twenty five, even better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, what other fun things do you guys have coming up or planned? Because if I remember right, there's also going to be a Halloween party. Uh, yeah, this we weekend. are. Yeah, we, we've uh, our, our first Comic Con. We had the Spasmatics come to our after party there, and you know we've gone to see them as a group here at Liquid Joe's because they play there every Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And we thought, hey, you know, this is an excuse for for a party. And so we're just, you know, it, it's gonna it's a since it's so close to Halloween, it's a good chance for people to. To have another excuse to dress up, and you know, people don't have to dress up if they don't want to. But um, you know, we we definitely encourage it. You know, we're our staff. We're going. We're going to dress up, and uh, it's going. It should be fun. You know, this this is actually an event that you know I I generally don't dress up when we do Comic Con or yeah. anything like that. So this will be my opportunity to do that. Nice. Like you know. There's a few of us, I'm included, like when I go to Comic-Con or conventions, you know, because the radio stuff, you know, yeah. I have to look professional. I, right. Look, you know, if I walked up looking like Wolverine or, you know, Pokemon, people would take me serious. But right. Halloween's like the one time that it seems like every normal person can dress up and no one judges or anything like that. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's really great that the cosplay community here has grown so much, especially since Comic Con has moved in, it's you know I've I've seen football players that are you know dressed up in cosplay now, and it's everyone yeah. thinks it's acceptable. Where before you know they'd get razzed or teased about stuff like that unless it was on Halloween. So I I just love seeing the culture changing because you know of what you guys are doing with Comic Con and all these events, and it's just I think it's kind of changing everyone's perception where these things. Art we all love, and it's it's okay to to indulge in that. Yeah, we're, we're kind of helping to bring it out of the closet, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, you know, now that Comic Con is passed, what are you guys' plans? I mean, because it sounds like you got another year, or or maybe not. It sounds like you guys are maybe talking about bringing Fan X back. We are looking really heavily at uh, making sure we can do a fan X this year, and you know there's some challenges as far as finding the right dates to be able to do it uh, sometime within you know the winter or spring. So we you know we've looked at the end of January. The two possible dates at the convention center for us are end of January or um, the first week of April, which is the same week weekend the general conference for the LDS church will be downtown Salt Lake and so it if uh if we decide to, to do it that weekend and try to overlap downtown on Saturday, 
it's it's going to create even a uh, higher logistical nightmare. Yeah. Than than already people experience, and so I um, and also is in in respect to that, you know, I, I I don't think we could have encouraged them to change it where they've been doing it that way for you know <laughs> how many years. Uh, yeah. And I'm joking about that, of course, but uh, um, anyway, we we just didn't want to, you know, it, it just creates a uh, challenge to try to uh, overlap with that, and so so we have, you know, anyway, we we're we're looking at some great possibilities, and whatever we do, we're we're going to make sure that it's going to be a, a, a great time. So, yeah, I mean, I I could definitely see how the April date would be a conflict, you know. Just because the Salt Palace is so close to yeah. you know the conference center downtown, and is uh, as interesting as it would be to see everyone in you know their dress suits mixed with cosplayers intermingling downtown, um, yeah, it would probably be uh, a logistical nightmare in a well, way. I, I think what's going to happen if we did that, you know, everybody would see all these people dressed as Clark Gregg. Um, <laughs> From Agents of Shield, yeah. Shield, yeah, and so it would be like, I guess we could go with the world's largest, uh, you know, Agent Coulson uh, look-like contest. That would be nice, yeah. Yeah. Now, with the end of January, would that be kind of coinciding with um, Sundance in any way? That's um, nothing formal with Sundance, but just because the celebrity appeal is really heightened at that time, and plus. It also, I, I think, it creates a draw for some of the celebrities that may not do conventions as much to possibly come out. That that's that's definitely a huge draw for us. The negative for us is that it's winter. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's not real exciting. But uh, we if we if we do January, we'll make sure that we have a larger area of the convention center set aside for making sure that people are not lining up in the streets. But we also have come up with, we've been working with uh, uh, Media One, and they've been working on a, a different system for handling admission that should make it easier to get people in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that we we are probably going to, you know, we'll limit the event. We're, we won't be, if we do the January event, we'll purposely not allow it to get bigger. It was, it was going to be definitely smaller than the, our last event. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I just bringing up Comic-Con, you guys did a great job this last year with bringing more people in through the door quicker. Uh, the setup seemed... I, I didn't hear any complaints, but it seemed like it moved a lot more efficiently and quicker, and it was nice having that big open area that you could bring people into... Uh, while they're getting processed through, so not only that, just the re- rearrangement of where you put the celebrities and that—it it just seemed so much more open, and it seemed like people were flowing through the convention center a lot easier. And even though it was packed way more than the year before, yeah, it was crazy, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah that was. Um, you know, the one thing about the conventions is. There's always something to adjust and you know try some things that work better. Sometimes they don't uh, work better, we, but we you know we're always looking to learn from one event to the next and continue to refine the process. And so um, we we hope that everybody 
will say that you know from one event to the next that things continue to get better. Yeah, and, you know, and everyone I I've talked to at least you know so they'll have a complaint here, a complaint there, and it's just like you know they're still learning. You, know, you guys aren't New York Comic Con that's been around for you know decades. Um, you know they've had time to adjust and and grow and change. And just two years in, you guys went from you know a small inkling of an idea to a giant behemoth that, you know, can challenge any of the other Comic-Cons around the nation. So, you know, they, I just remind them to be a little patient and understanding that there's there's going to be growing pains, especially how well, fast so you guys are growing. That. Yeah, thank you for that support. And, and it does, yeah, it does help. And I, I and I, I, have, I feel, for the most part, the sentiment that, you know, that people have given us a bit of slack. And oh, I, yeah. Think, you know, even even if they have a challenge getting in when they get into the event, it's almost like they have the opportunity to see what it is that they were there for, whether it's the comic book creators or to see the celebrities or to see panels or whatever it may be. When they finally get into the event, it, it helps to kind of overcome the burden of getting in. But my my nemesis, you know, if if, uh, if the Avengers nemesis is, is Hydra, uh, mine is getting people in the building. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's our thing. Is we, we want to make sure that we continue to improve on the experience of, mm-hmm. of getting people in so they don't have to wait in long lines. Um, you know, that's, that's not what, you know, nobody's happy when that happens. We, we love that. We love that there's the interest there. And that's, that's a real positive thing that there's enough interest that there, there will be line or there has been line issues in the past. But ultimately, we we don't want there to be you know we don't want people to have to wait more than you know a few minutes or in worst case maybe ten or fifteen minutes to to get into the event. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, the the line issue. I mean, good luck to you on that one. I, I don't have any good suggestions. That one's a tough one, to be honest. Well, well, we. I mean, I mean, what we're looking at doing is the RFID chips. Oh. And by doing that. Well, you know, one of the challenges of just sending out wristbands to people before the event is there's always motivation for the wrong people to to try to beat the system that way. And and so with the RFID, we'll we'll be able to have a a much better way that we can send badges out to those people that wanted to um, get them sent to them, or uh, create some areas where they can pick them up before the event, which we've done in the past, but this would just be that much easier. Yeah. So, well, those are great ideas. Yeah, we're just, you know, making, you know, not going to make 100% promise that it's all in place, but everything's looking like it's going to be in place uh, for our events going forward. Nice. Now, I mean, just kind of circling back around on Comic-Con there, uh, is there going to be any more, like, opportunities? Because, you know, during the whole event, it seemed like Stephen Amell and um, John Barrowman were like competing against each other for the crowd's affections. I mean, I know at one point John Barrowman disappeared and he hit out. Did they were what? Oh, I was saying that it seemed like Stephen Amell and John Barrowman were competing against the crowd's affections. Yeah. You know, there's one point where John Barrowman just disappeared and hit out in the TARDIS and you know, people would be taking pictures of themselves in front of the TARDIS, and he'd open up the door, and there he was in the middle of their picture. And oh or, wow! Or they were, you know, or they were cheering 
getting their crowds to yell their names louder and louder and I it was really fun to see that because they were really working the crowd and I'm just wondering if there's any if that was planned or if there's just any uh opportunity to just open it up for the celebrities to kind of well work I, with the I, I, attendees. Well I'll, t- I'll tell you you know one thing that I've learned in this business as I've dealt with uh, a lot of these celebrities is I realize that I mean they are all entertainers and yeah. you know, they understand how to how to do that and but there's people People like Jason David Frank and John Barrowman, I mean, I, I've seen them at like New York Comic Con and other places as well, where they will kind of do that rally against each other. But, it's, it, you know, it's really, it's all in fun. It's cheering up the, the crowd, making it, making their time waiting to meet with them more enjoyable. Yeah. And I, I, I think that that's really a lot of it's just out of interest in, making the people in line have a better experience. And, okay. you know, of course, it, it makes people... But we, we yeah, I think getting back to your question, you know, do, did we set that up in any way? We don't. I mean, okay. the stuff that happens there is, is so organic, and I do think that people, you know, people like John and Jason David Frank and, and Stephen even, you know, I, I would imagine Stephen probably didn't necessarily do that too much before our event. It, you know, he seems to me to be a little more... Reserved, but okay. then I think John probably brought him out of his shell a bit in that in that regard. And so, but that but that once again, that stuff it's so organic, and it's something that uh, these entertainers, these people that know how to interact with their fans, they do such a great job of it. Nice. So John Barrowman, I I'm just so impressed with him. You know, the more I, I learn about him, I I. Um, I went to Phoenix Comic Con. Uh, it wasn't last year, but the year before. Mm-hmm. And when I went there, I um, I saw these huge lines. I mean, they had Walking Dead people there and, and a bunch of other celebrities. But I uh, I saw the giant line for somebody, and and it's like, who's this guy? And they, oh, it's John Berman. Well, who's John Berman? Well, he's in Torchwood. He, you know, uh, Doctor Who. Why so many people are? I I didn't get it. It was when I was learning a lot about this, and I didn't realize what it was. But he had such a big following there. But in watching him and, and seeing the way he interacts and and engages people, I understand why there is that huge draw for people to see him. I mean, yeah. you know, I imagine. Um, I don't. I don't know. It, you know, we as far as how much you know, revenue some of these guys do in selling autographs and things. We, You know, we're not always up on that. You know, as long as they get to a certain mark, then we don't have to worry about it. But um, I would imagine that John Barrowman probably had one of his best shows. And I, I had heard that Stephen Amell hit his best single-day show Wow! while he's out here. And that's, you know, that's exciting. You know, it's yeah, exciting it that our fans will support him in that way because what we're going for is if that information's out there, because they, they talk to other celebrities and they say, well, these are the shows you want to go to and these are the shows you don't want to go to. Yeah. And so our goal is to make sure when people talk um, to to other celebrities that they say how great the fans are and how, how well they do. And um, We did have, we're, Brian, my partner and I, uh, Brian Bramberg, he handles the marketing here. Um, yeah. He and I went back to New York Comic Con to check that out uh, 
couple weeks ago. When we were back there, we saw Jonathan Frakes. We wanted to say hi to him. You know, we saw some of the guests that had been to our event. And Jonathan said, hey, I heard your show was really great. In fact, I talked to Bruce Campbell, and he said he had a fantastic show out there. And, and Jonathan had said when he was out here, he and Mar Marina Sirtis both told us that they felt that our show was the best show that they'd been to ever. Wow. And that is like, and then they said like in the 27 years I've been doing cons, this has been my, my favorite show that we've done. And, you know, hearing that sort of praise and then to find out people like Bruce Campbell are talking about it to Jonathan Frakes and, and, you know, just that information gets around and it's, you know, the fans, it's really, it's all about the people here mm -hmm. that have that fan energy and support and make these things successful. No, I agree, and I, I think there are a lot of great fans here and uh, a lot of great people that come to Comic-Con, and they they bring that excitement and that energy. But, I mean, on top of that, you guys really put on an amazing show. So it's it, it's just great. I mean, you guys, you have great panels, really informative. I mean, even in the big rooms, people don't have to worry about trying to catch a glimpse uh, you know, the actor or actress up on the stage because you have those big, massive, big screen TVs off to the side so people can take a look at that. Uh, it's just, it's it's a wonderful setting. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, we we love it. We love what we do, and, and uh, we hope that people realize that this just isn't a, you know, it's not a business deal for us. Of course, you know, the business has to work out. Mm -hmm. we, we have to make the business work. <laughs> But it's it's really it's a it's a passion and a love for what's going on, you know. It, 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 you know, I didn't I didn't start off thinking you know I'm going to start running events years ago. I mean, I, I had no idea I would be doing something like this. But what what happened to me is is I traveled to some different comic cons as a vendor, and as I went to them, I I was pulled into that energy, and I thought, wow we got to have this in Utah because I know Utah fans are, are every bit as exciting and fun, if not better, than the fans in the other cities I was at. And and when I got started the ball rolling on it, there was such great support that it developed this, this symbiosis for this. Uh, you know, we fed off each other as we we made our original announcement on our first event. Then there was so much strong support. People started buying tickets and and ultimately. Because of that initial support, we were able to, you know, start, you know, where we started with five guests we announced, and all of a sudden we started adding more and, and got to where we added William Shatner and then Stan Lee and, and then all that. And the only reason we were able to do that is because ticket sales were strong enough to support that. Because, yeah. you know, the thing we don't want to ever have happen is, is we overbook the event. Let's say we have too many celebrities or too high of expectations that they may have and they come here and there's not enough fan support for them, then they'll go out and tell people, oh, I went to Salt Lake and it was dead. You know? yeah. So it's kind of, it's kind of a, 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 a delicate balance that we have to do when we produce a, a show. No, I mean, I remember talking to you way before uh, the first show and just when it was a small idea and, and you talk to me about it which I mean, it sounded great and just seeing how it went from that and then suddenly oh we have these people and then we have these people and it's like whoa is this really going to happen 
I mean, yeah. I remember my guys and us talking about it, and they're like, oh, this this can't be real. This can't be real. And then, you know, just weeks before, it's like, this is really going to happen. So, yeah. and then it, you know, then the show opened, and then just you show up that first day, and you just see that line wrap around. It was just like, wow. So, yeah. you know, and, and yeah, besides the Hero Dash, you guys also do, throughout the year, you're doing um, cosplay uh, classes to teach people yeah. how to do cosplay at the Leonardo. Yes. Um, well, you know, as I kind of mentioned earlier about cosplay coming out of the closet, um, it there, there is a great community here of people that are interested in, in that. But really, what I find the common thread in in fandom and and uh, in this industry is I find that people are creative and they, they're either or imaginative or creative, and that—that's what—that's the energy that drives all all of this. And so, giving people more of an outlet to learn new techniques and things to to produce their their ideas in physical form that that only helps to to spawn that creativity. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. So, all right. Well, I. I hate to take up more of your time, and I appreciate all the time you've given me. Uh, so the Hero Dash is this Saturday, October 25th at Liberty Park. Starts at, or be there by 1 p.m. for re- for registration. Uh, the 5K starts at 2 p.m. It's $30 unless you uh, go with the fi- uh, the promo code FUNRUN. gives you $5 off, and I'm guessing they go to your website to register for that? They can go, they can go to our website in order to... The, uh, passes. Yep. Okay, great. And wow, I I hope everyone goes out. This is an opportunity to dress up, have fun, go running, and then Saturday night for adults, if they want to go to Liquid Joe's, you guys have your Halloween party, and the yeah. Spasmatics are playing. It's just, it sounds like a great weekend for Comic Con and uh, for geeks all around. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's going to be fun. We we sure appreciate. Uh, to support in this community and, and enjoy any opportunity we can to meet with them. So, well, you know, let us know if there's any more we can help support you on. I mean, I know Jeremy reached out to me on this one, and you know, we're more than happy to support you guys and uh, our listeners. You know, their fellow geeks. So it's perfect marketing for you guys, and you hit that target audience. And you know, we just I want to see you know Comic Con grow, and I I want to you know know several decades down the road that it's still going strong like these other cons out there. I mean, it's definitely got the potential and you know, once again, you know, congrats to you guys, my hat's off to you for putting on a really great show. You know, I we've gone to several cons around the nation and it's really fun to have this fun and a, an exciting of a show at home. Oh, thank you so much for your support. Yeah. All right, well, thank you for your time and uh, you know, again, let us know if there's anything you can do for us. Or we can do All for right. you, yeah. Yeah, no, of course. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Okay, hey, we'll talk to you later. Have a good one, Dan. Bye. All right, goodbye. Hi, this is Ed Greenwood. You're listening to Dungeon Crawls Radio and Crawl Baby Crawl.
So how have things been going since uh, your last book was uh, released, The Adversary? Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm ready good. for this one to come out. <laughs> yeah. Now, if, uh, it comes out uh, this, the 16th of October, right? The 14th. 14th. Sorry. 14th. Never trust the Internet. Okay. One website the release party is on the 16th, so. That's what is probably I was saying, so apologize. So it's just around the corner then. Yes, it's coming up quick. Nice. Very nice. So I guess we can just jump into things, just start this off really quickly. Now, the <laughs> next book, Fire in the Blood, uh, which continues on after the the uh, adversary, correct? So and it's, it's gonna uh, have the fourth fourth book in the Frida series. The Frida series, so yes. Yeah. I guess they're calling it the Brimstone Angels saga now. Brimstone <laughs> Angels right? saga. That's 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 pretty yeah. that's a mouthful, but it sounds <laughs> epic. Gives it kind of a, a fun twist. Yeah. So why why I can I ask why the, the series name change? Uh, well, originally, um, the series was called Brimstone Angels. Uh, it was okay. so because the the um, the naming convention that that Wizards had decided on was that they would do um, you'd have a book uh, and it would the series would be about a character, um, and then the next book would, would have the first book's title as the series title and then its own title. So my first book was Brimstone Angels. Uh, the next book was Brimstone Angels, Lesser Evils. Um, but then the, then the Sundering came along, and as you know, frequently happens, they said, we're going to change everything about the way we were going to do the titles now. Um, and so then the adversary was just the adversary. Um, but then when it comes to Fire in the Blood, it's I think it's actually labeled as a Brimstone Angels uh, advers- or a Brimstone Angels novel and companion to the adversary or something. There was a lot of discussion about how exactly they were going to to knit these two things together. Um, so, but but in talking about Fire in the Blood and and in the books coming forward, um, my editor has suggested we call it the Brimstone Angels saga. It sounds yeah, it sounds epic. <laughs> nice, it does. So. In the new book, where are we going to see uh, Frida go? This is the book where they finally go to Cormier. Um, okay. For the whole, for basically the whole series, I've been I've been trying to get to Cormier. Um, it was originally my plan for the second book, but then they asked me to write a book about Harpers and Gintarum. Uh, and then it was my plan for the third book, and then they asked me if I'd be interested in doing the Sundering. Um, so then it was the fourth book, and and. This time I was like, really have to, guys. <laughs> I'm running out of ways to um, stretch that conflict out. Uh, unfortunately, it, they were really excited about about the the concept. So this this book it still takes place during the Sundering, um, okay. and so this is Cormier. Um, you you saw in the Sentinel a glimpse of Cormier at war. Uh, this is sort of it starts earlier than the Sentinel, so you see that war develop and sweep through uh, Cormier and and how. Um, how it comes out of it. Well, nice. So even though we kind of thought that the centering was over, this is kind of just another story that's happening while that's occurring then. Yeah, the, I, I think the thing that's a little bit it's easy to get kind of tripped up with is that the uh, so the sundering is sort of a marketing campaign is over. Um, yeah. The sundering as the focus of the the games and the adventures is over. Um, 
for the novels, you know, if we were all to skip ahead to 1490, which I think is the loose um, start date for um, fifth, sort of the fifth edition, uh, you'd miss a lot of things. You know, if I yeah. if that would be four years, skipping four years between Adversary and the next book. So, you know, to tell the best story, um, at least three of us are still in the Sundering time period um, because okay. the Herald ends at the you know pretty much at the end of the Sundering. I think Ed is into the new timeline. Um, but for, for Troy Denning and R.A. Salvatore and myself um, and anybody else, you know, if, uh, that comes back into it, uh, they'll, they'll probably be wrapping up things. But that, the nice thing is that there's, there's lots of stories that, you know, when the Sundering kind of came to a close, people were like, well, we never got to see this. It's like, no, no, wait, it's still coming. Um, so yeah. this one is sort of the war in Cormier uh, and how, you know, how did it get to be quite so bad and, and, uh, how did they make it out? Nice. Well, I, I like the fact that you're not just jumping. You know, we kind of saw that. Yeah. At least in my feeling with, like, when the spell plague hit with 4th edition rolling in, it's just like the storylines made this immense jump. And it's like, whoa, what happened to all this stuff? So I like the fact that you guys yeah. are still playing in that sandbox moving up to that point. I'm really glad that, they, that they've said, you know, we want you to be able to do the best way you can, and that means you you pick when it starts. Um, mm-hmm. You know they they want everybody moving forward, and they you know uh, you're you're aiming at getting there. But you know it, it, it's just a little bit tricky. I've had people ask me like, how does this book fit into you know fifth edition cosmology, or how does um, how did the the fifth edition sort of rule changes affect you? And like they kind of haven't yet in a lot of ways because. You know, in in a in the world, the you know, there's still magic is still shifting, right? There's there's not a hard line where it's like, okay, and now ritual magic works like this. Um, so, you know, you're kind of telling the story um, in Fire and the Blood, for example. The war wizards um, would have you know developed ways to use magic with the sort of the broken weave of spell plague, and now it's coming back together um, as you know Elminster and and his folks go around and repair it. So they're finding that sometimes they're casting spells, and it's just all of a sudden it's so much easier, and so it surges. And so kind of they're they're sort of redeveloping how they're doing magic um, little by little to, as sort of a, a nod to the fact that now, you know, this this structure that, that, kind of, that controls how you do magic is in place again, and, and that the rules have shifted a little bit. Nice. Now, are you finding it difficult to try to balance between the two, I guess, settings where we had the Spell Plague in 4th edition and now 5th edition as you're trying to weave your story to include both? No, because it is taking place through the transition, so you can kind of, um, you know, you stop and you say, well, if it looks like this and then it's going to look like this, how do you, you know, what does it look like when you move through? Uh, And... To me, that's interesting. I like this. One of the things I love about writing in shared world is that you take the pieces um, that can't move and you kind of extrapolate. Um, you you bounce off of things that that are would otherwise feel like they were in the way, um, mm-hmm. and 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 that helps you create the story. So you know, if you said if I were just making up my own world and I had it used to be like this and it's going to be like this, um, that could be fun. It's going to be a lot looser, but but having those pieces that definitely you know that can't move, 
um, it's it's a different. It's sort of like I've always I was likened it to writing poetry, right? You can write free verse, and writing free verse well is is tricky. But there is something different and and tricky in a different way about say writing like a pantoum that have a really strict structure, and that structure ought to be what kind of inspires you and and shapes the way you're telling your story. Hmm. Okay. Nice. Now, we also kind of see a darker side of magic in this book, correct? Which part? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just, I mean, we see a lot of demons, and there, there's a lot of yeah. war magic, it seems like, going on. Um, you know, and a lot, I, I wouldn't say all, most books, but a lot of books out there, it's kind of, you see a kind of a lighter side of magic, I would say, where it's, you know, Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's more defense and stuff like that. And this, it seems like we're going a little bit more into the darker stuff. Well, I think with um, the, the, in the whole of the series, you know, she, Farida, draws magic from the Nine Hells. Her powers come from, you know, this very dark and evil plane. Um, she herself is not evil. And, and you know, I, I kind of set out to say, how do you make a, a, a good warlock PC, basically? Like, what's the story that would take there? Um, so then, and, and with, you know, with the war wizards and things, I think there is a certain amount that when you play D and D, you know, you gravitate toward the magic, the destructive magic. Um, I know mm-hmm. in, in the game I play in now, um, our wizard is really frustrated. I think like, like cantrips, like, like, um, mage hand where it's, it doesn't do anything. You can't hurt anybody with it. You can't stop a bat, smack a bad guy with mage hand. Um, and cause, cause he wants those big blow up spells. Um, and that's, you know, that's always been what the war wizards are for. They're the defense of Cormier. Um, and, you know, while they're at battle, uh, it's pretty important. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, I, and I think, you know, within the game that that's, that is sort of, there's a more weight on it. But then there, there are sort of the, you know, more utilitarian. I, and and I, I like that sort of magic where, you know, what if we really had magical powers, um, you know, in a, in a medieval sort of setting, I, I feel like it would be more likely you'd be using it to figure out how to preserve food, you know, or yeah. um, make it hotter or colder, you know, do the things that we had to use technology to do. I like practical magic. So, um, you know, one of the things that I haven't quite figured out how to negotiate the ritual magic changes, but um, one of the characters, Ball, that's sort of his whole stick is he's really good at ritual magic, which is largely this kind of practical thing. So he uses it at one point to copy a document. Um, he uses it to um, kind of temporarily learn a language. Uh, there's a war wizard spell where he he uses it to make Farida look human, and he kind of adds a little flourish on it so that she looks like she would look when she, if she were human, um, which is mostly just him showing off. You know, a disguise spell, it would be so much easier if he's just like, okay, and now you look like this random noble woman I know. Um, yeah. But, you know, he likes to show off. So he he goes, look, I made this fancy spell. Um, so, I mean, those are, that's the kind of magic I prefer to write about, but I think for the setting and for the events, yeah, the destructive magic, it's a much kind of bigger spot on screen. Yeah. Now you kind of brought up a good, uh, an interesting point while you're talking there. So Frida pulls her magic from the nine hells, but she herself isn't evil. Um, I mean, where, how do you find a balance or how uh, an explanation for that? Because I, I know, you know, 
people out there that want to play a good character, but maybe you know a tiefling or something that wants that you know the powers draw from there. How mm-hmm. how is that possible? I mean, how do you visualize it, or how have you explained it? I think for me, it's it's what is the reason she has she wants this power, and what's the reason she accesses it. Um, she originally takes her pact. She originally makes the pact kind of by accident. Um, she sort of gets talked into it and doesn't realize what she's agreeing to. Um, but the reason she does is because she's so afraid of what the world might do to her sister. Her sister Havilar is um, a lot more reckless. She's a lot less aware of sort of the, the prejudices of other people and what they can do to her. Um, obviously, by fire in the blood, she's she's becoming more aware of it. And and Farida is just sort of convinced on some level that, you know, at some point Havar is going to cross a line and someone's going to hurt her, you know. And and this is what Lorcan, the, the half-devil she has the pact with, offers her. He says, you can protect her. You can protect her. You can protect everybody in this village. They live in a village of people who have basically left Jared Thymar or uh, who are tieflings who've left their societies. And the whole, the whole idea is that they've gone here to kind of escape, um, you know, these, this, of these other societies that just don't, they don't fit into. And, and he says to her, you know, you can, you can keep them safe. And that's what she wants. She wants to keep people safe. She wants to make sure the bad things don't get them. Um, and then he, he hands her this tool, which, you know, is, is kind of bad. I think that on some level you could argue that, you know, if, if the powers of the nine hells come from, you know, corrupted and condemned souls, those people were already bad. Um, that, that, that isn't, in, you know, intrinsically uh, going to, to damn you. But that, the, you know, the entire time, you know, devils are going to be kind of trying to coerce her into crossing a line. Um, mm-hmm. And she's so far been very firm about not doing that. You know, she doesn't want to hurt people, you know, aside from, you know, someone's trying to hurt you. You, you stop them. Um, she doesn't want power. She doesn't really want um, to, you know, become this all-powerful archmage, even if it means no one can hurt her. She doesn't – She there's a point in Fire in the Blood where um, a devil is sort of making her – making overtures to her, and she sort of rejects every one of these things because someone is going to get hurt if she takes it. Uh, and I think that's it. Like, you, you have to get down to who is this character – and you know what keeps what grounds them? What keeps them from crossing that line um, into selfishness, into you know not considering you know the means and the end? Hmm. No, I, I like that. So basically, you're showing that magic is a tool, whether it comes from a good source or an evil source, and it's really the individual's moral code which makes it whether they fall to you know fall from grace or stick to their stick to their guns, I guess. So yeah. I, that's, that's then, amazing. Fundamentally, like, fundamentally, she can't know whether or not she's she's damned, right? That's yeah. that's kind of above her pay grade. Um, so there is always that fear. But, you know, I think on a certain level, she's, you know, come to accept that that's the price. You know, if that's the price of making sure that her family doesn't get, you know, killed by crazy bigots or something, that, that, that she can stop, you know, she can help stop Shade from... Um, hurting all the, the chosen that in that camp or um, help Cormier keep its head above water, you know, that, that maybe that price is worth it. Um, you know. So she's making that self-sacrifice of her own, you know, eternal damnation for the safety of <laughs> it's a, the, those I, I, that it's she a little, loves. 
Yeah, it's a little it's a little less like definitively heroic than that because she doesn't know. I mean, yeah. Um, well, I think that lends a a, a, a nice bit of a, a characteristic to the character itself because, you know, she's doing these things. She does. She's not sure whether you know using this type of magic, which could be viewed as evil, is you know saving her or damning her. But she still, her moral code is simply: I need to protect you know the people I care about above all, even myself. Exactly. So. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's a great driving force in a character. I mean, that's amazing. Thank you. So, you know, I, I know it's, we've been building up to getting to Cormir. So why did you choose Cormir of all places in the realms to go to? <laughs> oh, I didn't know what I was getting into. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I picked it originally when I wrote Brimstone Angels. Um, Farida and Pablo are tieflings. Their adoptive father is a dragonborn. They're really the weird characters. Um, yeah. And I, I, that's something I really wanted. But I also knew early, early on that I would have a lot easier time uh, writing this story and getting people invested in this story if I had a human character that you could kind of latch on to while you were getting to understand, you know, Frida and Havilar were not that weird. They just looked weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing with the hen. Uh, so I, I had Bryn. I added Bryn. And, and what I wanted for him was to come from just a really quintessentially human place. And I picked Cormier because I'm like, that's, that is pretty darn human. Um, Corm- you know, Cormier's it's, it's pretty homogenous in a lot of ways. Uh, you, you have, there are, you know, character NPCs that have appeared that are um, like Kaladni, um, was part Tarami. You've got. Oh, like occasionally a half elf there are elves sort of up in the forest but they don't there's a lot of friction there so it's really this it's a very human uh kingdom um and that's that's what i was interested in um and then i had asked i, I had this idea that he could be um fleeing because he's in line for the throne and his family is trying to push him up the line because they don't have a better claimant um noble families in cormier being kind of crazy uh and I had asked Ed Greenwood, you know, is there a place I can fit him in to this this royal line? Uh, and and he gave me <laughs> he gave me a spot. Me not quite knowing um, how much that was going to kind of entrench me in in Cormier, uh, mm-hmm. because Bryn is basically like after the royal family, it's him. Um, he's the the grandson of the previous crown prince. Um, wow. out of, from an out of wedlock birth. So, well, <laughs> she was married. He wasn't. So it's a, but, but the current king has already legitimized one of his brother's bastards. So he's, he's mm-hmm. kind of a softy. You know, he wants to make sure you don't leave family out in the cold. So, you know, this, this is hanging over Brent's head is the legitimization of his father. And once his father's legitimized, he's legitimized and he becomes, you know, a, a, a claimant for the throne. And, his, his family has a lot more power all of a sudden, and they're going to push a lot harder um, to, to, to get him even closer. And, and he knows that if that happens, that's going to cause a, a serious problem, um, you know, maybe even a civil war. Cormier's never had a succession, succession issue like this. You don't usually legitimize bastards, you know. Um, mm. So there's trouble of ruin. Uh, but so, you know, once you have that... <laughs> It starts to every every book that that it, I have to wait 
um, that, that problem grows, that family is making more inroads. You, you can't really assume like, oh, no, they're just twiddling their thumbs. This is a big, big deal to them. So I like that. Uh, you know, it kind of goes on to something we see on our show quite a bit when people are playing the, their their D&D sessions. The world is still spinning around them even though they're on their adventures. So, you know, exactly. even though they're 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 going through the dungeon to collect this magical artifact, you know, the machinations of governments and uh, groups and that are still moving in the back, you know, around you and, you know, things are are either getting better or worse depending on, you know, the climate of what's going on. And I, I like that, that even though we have the, the main story, you still have that kind of backstory moving and things are people are manipulating and, you know, getting things in ready or kind of ready for a possible civil war or a throne, you know, going after the throne. So that that's that's great. That's, I think that's so fun in the games. I mean, it can be a little bit um daunting sometimes our our DM frequently will be like, you know, She's got like a counter going in the background. So if we're not fast <laughs> enough at something, we're going to miss, you know, an opportunity. And, and when we first started playing, it was fun because um, three of our players are brand new and they were used to Warcraft where, you know, you know, if you skip this, you can come back to it later. So there was a lot of like bickering <laughs> over loot. And meanwhile, the robbers were chasing are getting away. And, and yeah. me and the, the other guy who had been playing a while, we're just like, screw it, we're leaving you behind in this skeleton pit while you argue over who gets the rusty arrows because we're going to miss out. And yeah. you know, it, But it was fun, and they, and they got the sense of like, oh, no, things matter. All these little things matter, and it, it's just it, – oh, they've been so much fun to play with, especially as they've gotten used to it. So, nice. Sidebar. <laughs> yeah, I know that that sense of urgency needs to be there because, you know, if – you're racing towards this town because you know there's a dragon or an army coming, you know, and you're taking your sweet time going through every door and every chamber in this castle to find the best loot. That army is going to arrive. Right. So, no, that's great. I mean, that's that's. I, I like what you and the other person did. It's like, okay, who cares about these rusty arrows? Or, you know, the guy's getting away. Bigger on that. You know, I think a lot of people, when they're gaming, lose that perspective because, like, oh, I got to get the best this and that. And I think, unfortunately, Warcraft or these other MMORPGs that are out there have kind of, you know, taken players away from that mindsetting of that urgency because, like, you're right. Oh, I can just come back later. I can go pick right. up that you armor. Can't, you can't do that. I mean, I don't know. I, there might be MMOs out there that do do that, but I, don't, I think it would be really hard. I mean, if that's yeah. really how you want to play, that's fine. But I think you're missing, yeah, you're missing out on something really cool that an RPG can do, um, which is it can immerse you in another world. And if you know the world is is revolving literally like revolving around you, you, you kind of you lose a little of it. Yeah. Now, do you find yourself kind of pulling in things or experiences that you've had while role playing into your books when you're writing, especially like if you're <laughs> writing Forgotten Realms? So, uh, not in some ways yes, and in some ways no. Um, I told Car- like, like Farida actually was very, very, very loosely based on a character I played with the same name. Um, she was also a Tiefling warlock. She had a Fey pact, and uh, but she did have a twin sister. Um, but you know, after that, I just kind of, I the thing is that, that that what works in a game and what you do for a game doesn't necessarily jibe with. Um, 
what you do for uh, for a novel. Um, and, and like a really good example of that is, you know, my Frida had a twin sister. Uh, her name was Tamura. And Tamura, I mean, Tamura was created for my friend to have a fun time, right, to, to play the character she wanted to play. And what I needed was Havilar. I needed a character to be a foil for Farida. Um, I needed her to be a lot younger. I needed her to be, I mean, I, I played that character really snarky, and it just wouldn't have worked. Um, so a lot of that changed. I steal FTC names sometimes from my DM because, like, uh, for, for Fire in the Blood, some of the war wizards, were um, rangers we encountered because I, you get to a point where you're just like I can't think of any more names. Um, yeah. There are some imps that appear, uh, and one of them is named after my uh, Farida, my PC's uh, familiar mod um, that my DM voiced. And again, it's sort of like he was he was really snarky and and rude and funny, um, and it didn't work. So this is a totally different character. Um, and I think that's the thing is that when you're playing a game, you know, a lot of the time what you're doing is, is meant to kind of be fun for everybody uh, at that table. And, and it's a tricky thing. You know, I, I've never successfully DM'd a game. I'd love to. But um, when I do, I get too into the idea of how you do it like a book. Um, yeah. And it means I'm a total control freak DM and I'm not letting any – I'm really not putting everybody's fun at the forefront, but I think that's an important part of the way you play the game is making sure that everybody is enjoying themselves, which doesn't always lend itself to a great narrative. Um, yeah. uh, so I, it hasn't come up that there's been something where I can pull anything bigger than that. Um, but the, I think what I shoot for is the feel of um, kind of playing D&D, that there's, you know, that, that there's always something kind of wondrous happening. In the realms, I feel like magic is, it's not... I, I, sometimes I think people in, assume that in the realm of magic is everywhere and it's cheap um, because I think sometimes when you play D&D, you get used to it just being like, oh, yeah, let's go pop a healing potion. Um, yeah. But it should be something that people, you know, have an experience with and that it, I, I feel like making it be something sort of wondrous. I try to put at least like one kind of wondrous thing in there to remind you, you know, magic is this big, amazing thing. Um, and, you know, making sure that there's there's something that I would I wouldn't, I would have fun, you know, running into. Um, in Lesser Evils, they explore an underground library uh, tomb of an ancient Netherese arcanist. And, you know, I had a lot of people say, I am totally going to run this. So I'm going to adapt this and run it for my players because it was like such a weird, trappy, kind of haunted house feeling. You know, there were ghosts there. There were weird, you know, traps you had to disable. and um, But you had a feeling that, that this was sort of like a space that was out to kill you in a way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in in Fire in the Blood, there's there's some scenes that take place down in the tunnels in Cormier, which I always thought was a really interesting aspect of the city, that there are these underground um, passages that sort of link into the sewers that, that are sort of, in some some ways, they're used for smuggling, and in some ways it's sort of like the crown looks the other way. In other areas, the crown, you know, it canonically puts a bunch of traps there because they don't want you smuggling. Um and it's sort of an interest. It would be an interesting place to have, uh, you know, a, 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 an encounter, um, or just you know, how do you you use the tools from the game to solve problems? And sometimes, I think it's fun to sort of you, you twist it a little bit. Like, how do you break into the palace? You know, if you needed to get a message in, or um, how would how would you track down someone you can't find with magic? Um, and you kind of look at like what's in the book, and you 
you kind of problem solve. And I think that's another thing I really like about playing the game is if you have all these tools, which ones are you going to use? Mm-hmm. Nice. Now, what is it like when you're developing these ideas? Because you mentioned, you know, with your one character, you had to go to Ed to see how he could fit in here. You know, what is it like going to Ed Greenwood saying, hey, this is my idea, this is what I'd like to do, and then he's, and it's like he opens up his gigantic tome of the realm saying, okay, well, we can put him here. I mean, because, I mean, he's been working on this since he, I, six, seven, I, I can't remember the yeah. exact age, and and he's continuing to work on this, you know, it, and it's just continuing to grow. You know, what is it like? You know, kind of being said, okay, you're in this section of my world now. Go. I mean, that that's, that has you know, to be overwhelming. I, it's a little. It's it, I've done it for so long that it's sort of become like, oh, it's this Tuesday. Um, but I, you <laughs> know, I am always scared when I tell Ed an idea because I, I want him to like it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's if, if he didn't, I would just it would break my heart and then have to go back to the drawing board. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, he's been very excited about everything. Uh, that I've, I've brought to him, like I'm just, it just makes me dread the day. He's like, oh no, uh-uh, don't do that. Um, yeah. But and it's it's funny too because you go to him with questions and you think this is going. I just want to make sure there's not an answer for this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't know how many there were, and in in in, in, in actually in uh, Fire in the Blood, for a lot of it, he sort of outsourced me. Um, there's a designer, Brian Cortijo, who's also sort of the the Carmerian expert. Um, and, and Ed has kind of said, okay, you know, if people have questions about Cormier, you know, you have the answers. So he had written several articles for Dragon, and I'd asked him about those, about details in those. He actually sort of ca- created the characters um, of Raedra and Barovis and Ospra, um, some of the expanded royal family, and he, he put more detail into Ervil and Erzred. So um, I kind of went home and I'm like, I asked him stuff and I, I, I sort of said, this is what I'm doing and, and I'd really like your blessing um, and, and got, you know, a little more, some, some ideas on how to, how to flesh those out and differentiate them a little better um, from my characters. Um, but for Ed, like, yeah, you go to him and you ask a question like, I, the best one I can think of is when I was writing Lester Evils, I needed a particular kind I needed a stone that was really identifiable. I needed the characters to be able to look at this and go, um, this comes from this part of these mountains. Um, the, the, the character who's sort of an expert on those things, not just anybody. And, you know, I went to him and I said, do you know of any place in the mountains near Waterdeep that would have a kind of granite with a grain that was particularly identifiable? And he said, in the nether mountains, on the uh, the eastern side, there's a vein of orbicular granite, and some few pictures. And I'm just I I was really expecting him to say no. Go ahead and make it up. Um, and I think that's actually the biggest danger is that, um, you know, so it's hard to tell sometimes what is occurring to him in the moment because it's just you know you do this enough it gets down in your veins and you just spit out something. Like wouldn't yeah. this be cool? And, you know, I tell him every time, I'm like, there's not an answer. You don't have to do that for me. It's cool. Um, but, you know, he, he'll get really excited and, like, have to find the perfect little detail or, or spot. Because, you know, it, it might be that there's, you know, two people out there who've read every source book and every Dragon article and remember the time that, 
you know, this Lascaux root was mentioned, and they will recognize it when I say this is carved out of Lascaux root. But, you know, I know it's there, and and, and Ed knows it's there. And it's, it, it, I think it contributes to that feeling of the world being a continuous living place. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know how you do it. I mean, Ed, Ed's a great guy, and he was always really happy and jovial and excited every time we've talked to him. But, you know, w- what happens to that one day? Because he has that voice where he can just get down there and it's like, no. And it's like, ah. <laughs> I mean, I, I I would literally just cringe like, okay, and then, like want to shy away. I mean, I don't ever see that coming from him, but, you know, it just seems like. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I He's very good at working with you. So if you so if you need something, he'll help you figure out how to get that to work. Um and he's he you know, he's really enthusiastic about other people playing with this world. So nice. he's he's usually in, he's usually inclined to say yes, um yes but or um yes and then uh no. Uh so I know there were examples, and now I'm I'm, I'm blanking on them because there were a couple of times where I was like, I want to do this. Is this a thing? And he's like, No, that's not a thing. And I said, Well, this is what I need to happen, and um, I I really need it to be this. And maybe we could be, you know, this could be the circumstances or something. And he's like, Ah, okay, this family does, and and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, I mean, he's he's a, an invaluable resource. Um, and, and just is really amazing the amount of, of love and detail that he's put into the world. That's amazing. Now, in your writing, while you're writing, what is kind of the, I guess, how much for every, we'll say, hour of writing, how much research are you having to do uh, for the realms? Because, I mean, it is vast. And yeah. uh, you do have to pull from all these different sources, Dragon, the source, uh, the, the actual books, Ed, um, you know, other campaign books. I mean, how much research are you pu- putting in for every hour of writing, do you think? This, I'm not good at estimating time, unfortunately. Oh, okay. um, no, but, but it is, I mean, it is a fair amount. It's not, it's probably not as much as it, it looks like it's going to be for, for a lot of things, um, the other day I had a question about um, a, a god in the unferic pantheon, and Matt Cernet is sort of the continuity guy on Watsi's end. I said, you know, can you send me anything that has this name in it? And so, you know, I get this huge dump of documents because he was in the middle of working on the monster manual at the time. So a huge dump of documents, and the vast majority of them are the same sentence. Um, you know, for this this case, it was a, it was a pretty minor thing, but because the world is so big, a lot of that material um, does kind of end up boiling down to a paragraph or two that's kind of expanded on here and contracted here. Um, for other places like Cormier, there is so much written about it. There's so many novels. There's so many source books, um, and so that one's a little trickier. And that's where you know having someone you know that you can send shoot an email to. Um, is really valuable, and you know, and there are scenes. You know, a lot of it is front loaded, um, figuring out, and 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 a lot of the questions, um, you 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 figure out the feel of it before you start. Um, the uh, then and then a lot of the questions are just little things that you don't have to am- have answered to keep writing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what's the name of the person well, who would be? Uh, in this I'll position? just have a couple questions left, yeah. and then I'll, I'll let you go because I, I don't want to take too much of your time today. But um, you know. When what is it like? I mean, kind of because you have been playing, 
role playing. You've, I'm sure you've played in the realms. What is it like now to have your character that you've written about pretty much cemented in Forgotten Realms lore? I mean, that's just got to be really kind of cool. Yeah. It is. I mean, I think there's something really special about um, having a character that, that that's a part of something bigger like that, and and having a character that people, you know. Um, there, I, for, for Fire in the Blood, they actually did up um, stats to use Farida as an NPC in your game, uh, and that's something that people had been asking me for, but I don't know how to do that. That's not my ballywick. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that, that feeling of, you know, I think every author likes finding things like, you know, fan art or fan fiction because there's a sense of yeah. um, people care enough about your books that they they want more and um, there's there's something really special about that. And then the really wonderful thing about a shared world um, with with things like a role playing game and video games and comics attached is that those those are already built in. They're already there for people. Um, so you know, it's, it's really wonderful that that people that that people with Wizard and people reading have you know been attached enough to Farida to say we want her to be part of this too. Um, I can't think of anything better. <laughs> Oh, I mean, that, that sounds great. Now, um, is there another book that we're going to see Farida in after this one, or is that still up in the air, or is there any other projects you're working on? Uh, I have two more Farida books on contract. Uh, I'm yeah. working on one that I, I think we've decided is called Ashes of the Tyrant, like this morning decided. Um huh. there might, there, I might be – I might have the articles wrong, but we're going to say it's Ashes of the Tyrant. Um and then there's one more, which I've tentatively called King of Dust. So, uh, and that's that sort of forms one full arc of uh, this sort of the story of Frida and Asmodeus. Um, okay. And then we'll see. Uh, they, you know, they they have you know left the door open to keep writing um, these character-based series. But I, I never like to <laughs> I never like to say anything definite if I don't have a contract in my hand. Um, no. And then of course you know I'm working on other other projects that are. You know, uncontracted and not de- no no deadlines in place. So nice. So there's lots of work and lots more stuff to, coming down the road. Yes. <laughs> nice. Um, you know, the books are are very enjoyable, great reads. Um, I everyone I've picked up. You know, I've read you know Ed Greenwood and Bob Salvatore for years now. I mean, I could probably you know I'll, I'll age myself decades at this point. Um, and then picking up these books, I mean, they're just as great as Bob's or, or even um, uh, Elaine Cunningham or uh, Paul Kemp's. I mean, they're just great books. You know, you pick it up and it's like you're you're hooked and you want to see what happens with the character. And, and, you know, and I hate saying this, but there are, are some authors out there where they write and it's like, okay, you know, you're reading the story, but you're not as entrenched in the story as you'd want to be, that you have to read the next chapter. Or, you know, you're sitting in bed with the light on, and you know it's 1 o'clock, and you have to get to bed to go, go to work the next day. And it's like, <laughs> oh, I can't shut this. But, I mean, I found, you know, the book, you know, The, the Adversary, Lesser Evils, really great books, and it, it hooks you like that. It's like, oh, I can't put this down. So, you know, congratulations on being able to do that. That's wonderful you know, to I, hear. I, I, yeah. I, like, I really strongly feel that the, that the most important thing you can do is, is craft characters people care about. Oh, yeah. Like, if yeah. the plot is, is really ripping, but the characters are boring, like, you're just not going to get that response. Like, you don't, no, no. you don't care what happens to them on a certain level. So I'm really glad to hear that. 
Yeah, no, and, and I'm going to put put it out there that any, you know, for any of our listeners that if they haven't read the books, they need to because they they are that great. Um, you know, especially if they love El, El Minister stories or any of the Dritt stories, go go get them because I, these are great books. So um, you know, book releases October 14th on bookshelves everywhere on Amazon. I'm assuming Audible, uh, an audiobook's coming out as well that they can get on uh, Audible yeah, or anywhere I think, else. I think it's coming out the same day, um, but I'm not nice. sure on the Audible page. Wow. So, I mean, that's even better. All three, you know, all three formats, even uh, ebook as well. Yes. Yes. Wow. Okay. Wow. October fourteenth. Everyone, run out and grab it. Yes. So, uh, is there any other words of wisdom you could leave before we let you go for any potential or budding or inspiring authors out there? Keep at it. Um, the hardest part of, of writing is, is getting the words down and making sure you keep it up even when it doesn't feel like anything's working. We all have those moments. You will never get past it. <laughs> That's the best thing I can say. I will also, um, I just really quick wanted to point out um, for, I am participating in a charity event for Extra okay. Life on October 25th. Um, the a 24-hour D&D game with the uh, the Wizards team. If you go to Extra Life and search for my game, you can uh, donate, or you can also donate to the DM and unlock some monsters for us to fight. But it's for a good cause for Children's Miracle Network. Um, so I hope you, your listeners will check that out. I hope so too. That sounds amazing. Man, how can well, I get on that? Jeez. I'm doing it for this year. I am doing um, donations as votes for what character I will play. So depending on, you know, if you're willing to donate, um, you know, if you can donate like $15, you can vote for some characters I'm a little I'm a little more comfortable playing. And if you're willing to donate, I think it's $45, uh, you can vote for me to play Lorcan. So wow. please, please, don't, please don't vote for Lorcan. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a brilliant idea for a charity. Especially, you know, they can contribute money, and then you end up having to fight some really nasty, horrible monsters. I mean, that, that's that's an ingenious idea. So, and if you don't wow. like the players, we have we have sort of threshold things. So if you, you know, if we are, we, uh, I just I think unlocked a, an extra healing potion, um, or and higher up the I think the top the reward that the DM set was we could start two levels higher um, if we can oh. raise two thousand dollars. <laughs> Um, now, last specific... year I did it, and it was a lot of fun. Cool. Is there a specific website they need to go to for that? Uh, extralife.org. Um, okay. And then if you search for uh, Dungeons & Dragons team, I think, is, is the, the group. If you search for Aaron M. Evans, you can find my page. <laughs> okay. Um, and if you want to, if you really do want to donate to the DM, um, then you can you can find my team off of that. So. All right. Well, again, I'm going to let – Remind our listeners to go do this great charity, super fun, and you can watch uh, Aaron and everyone else. And yeah, have the, to... the game the game will be uh, broadcast on Twitch all 25 hours of it. So if you want to pop wow. in and watch watch a bunch of designers and authors and um, other such luminaries uh, act silly, <laughs> and I think we're running I think we're running Heart of the Dragon Queen, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Um, nice. Well, that that sounds super exciting and lots of fun. So I just want to say thank you for coming on the show again and spending all this time thank with us. Thank you so and, much for having me. Yeah, as always, we'd love to have you back on the show. It's always uh, enjoyable and, and lots of fun. And everyone, go buy the book because you won't regret it. 
Thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for your time, and uh, you know, just keep in touch, and we'll have you back on the show anytime. Great. I'll, okay. I'll let you know. Okay. Thanks, and have a great Thanks. day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.